I want to thank you for another opportunity to get into God's Word with you. Uh, and I sure have appreciated um, the requests that you've made to, to allow me to be a part of your worship and your spiritual education. What I'd like to do with you today is do something that I think is very important, and that is take a scene from the life of Jesus and just meditate on it and look at this particular interaction Jesus has with a certain person and ask what we learn about that. Um, there are a number of ways to analyze Jesus' interactions with people, but for our purposes today, we're going to think about how was Jesus the best counselor, the best evangelist, the best influencer of people? I know that all of us want to do a better job in our, our human interactions with fellow, our fellow man to help them know the Lord, to help them grow. And so we're just going to take a scene out of Jesus' life and think about that together. Our text for today is going to be Mark chapter 5, and we're going to look at the account of Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac, the demon-possessed man in the land of the Gergesites. Uh, and there's different ways that that's said depending on your version, um, but that's going to be our focus here. Verses 1 through 20 of Mark chapter 5. Now before we get into the text, I want to kind of put this story in the context of the Gospel of Mark. And if you go back to chapter 1, I want to show you that Mark deals pretty heavily with demon possession. That seems to be a topic that he brings up a lot in his writing. Um, in Mark chapter 1, around verse 23, <clears throat> it says, Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Here Jesus is in a synagogue, and this seems like a very strange place for somebody to be demon-possessed, or maybe it doesn't. Perhaps you've been in church and uh, you're pretty certain that you could pick out who it is in your congregation that would be the one that would all of a sudden cry out. Uh, but somebody does, and he casts the demon out. And it's interesting that whenever the demons speak, they always know who Jesus is. And they seem to have an, an, an idea that he is there eventually to deal with them in some emphatic way. Um, but Jesus also would usually say to these demons, be quiet, before he would cast them out. Uh, skip down to verse 27 in chapter 1. Uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, look at their reaction here in verse 27. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. <clears throat> Jesus was making a statement about his authority by having power over the spiritual realm. This was very much like him making a statement by having power over nature. He could calm storms. He could heal disease. He did the things that only God could do, and people were beginning to recognize that. Uh, you'll see more down around verse 32 in this text. Chapter 1, verse 32, When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. I want you to keep this particular verse in mind when we get to chapter 5. Normally, wherever Jesus would go, 
Um, they had lots of demon-possessed people. They had lots of people with illness. And the general thing that would happen is that they would crowd him because they wanted help from him. You're going to see the opposite reaction in the land of the Gerasenes. And we'll kind of ask the question, why would they have been different than all of the other places that kept bringing more and more people to Jesus? Uh, verse 39 of chapter 1 says that he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. This was something he was doing everywhere that he went. Skip ahead, if you would, to chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. And I think we have an interaction here that helps us understand why him casting out demons was so important. Um, chapter 3, um, look at verse 11 here. It says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. This is interesting. Whenever the demons would see him, whenever there was an interaction, they would cry out that he's the son of God. But Jesus didn't want them speaking. He kept tried to keep them quiet with that. Why? Um, some might theorize he didn't want that bad publicity. You know, some people say all publicity is good publicity, but I guess if demons are the ones talking about you, perhaps not. Um, I don't think that's really the issue. Um, maybe he's worried that they're going to associate him with the demons. We're going to see that here in verse 22 of chapter 3. Um, but I don't think that's it either because they're going to associate him with the demons regardless of whether they're quiet or whether they're not. Um, I, I think biblically there's another consideration here. Um, before Jesus could tell people exactly what his kingdom was going to be like, before he could define that his kingdom was not of this world and wasn't going to fight like the world fights, he might have been a little bit concerned that word would get out that the Messiah was around because there were zealots. I mean, there were people in Judaism who were ready to uh, overthrow Rome and rise up and fight and make him king. And, and so perhaps he wasn't wanting that to be well known yet until he set the parameters and got to teach things the way he wanted to teach. There might be a lot of reasons why that's the case, uh, but that is interesting. Let's go ahead and look here at chapter 3, verse 22, when the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now, I think this... This little uh, interaction is really important. The Pharisees say he's casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That's their word for the devil. Uh, that word Beelzebul actually comes from 2 Kings 1, around verse 2. That was the god of Ekron. It meant the lord of the flies. Uh, and, and one of the kings had actually sent to find out an answer from the god of Ekron, and he was rebuked on that occasion. Um, 
But it, it came to be the word that the Jews would use for the devil himself, for the ruler of the demons in their mind. Now, to counter their argument, their argument is the reason he can cast out demons is because he works with the demons and he's, he's in league with the devil. Jesus' answer is really just logical. Listen to it again. He quotes Abraham Lincoln. Uh, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's a joke, by the way. Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus. But his point is, nobody ever won a war like this. You never see a general going around shooting his own men. That makes no sense. That's not even a good argument. But what Jesus then says is really important. He made two claims about himself because he, cast it out, he cast out demons. One of those claims is right here in Mark 3, and that is, I am stronger than Satan. Nobody can go into a strong man's house and steal his stuff unless he first binds the strong man. So if you see me stealing his goods or casting out his demons, then the implication is, I have bound him. I'm stronger than the devil. That's his, that's his claim. The other claim is in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 20, when Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The, one of the proofs that the kingdom had come and the king had arrived was a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, that when the Messiah would come, he would cast the evil spirits out of the land. Um, and so Jesus associates his casting out of demons with the coming of the kingdom. Anyhow, those are some of the things that Mark is teaching about demon possession, and that'll help us make sense a little bit of what's happening in chapter 5. Now, let's put the story of the Gerasene demoniac in the immediate context of what's happening. Look here at Mark chapter 4 and notice what's going on in this chapter You'll notice there's a lot of red letters in chapter 4. That's because Jesus is doing some teaching. Let me show you what the essence of his teaching was, though. Verse 3, here's how Jesus started his parable of the sower. Listen to this. I've always wanted to start a sermon that way. Jesus would just get in front of a crowd and he would say something like this. Listen! And then he would speak. And after a little while, he would say something like this. Look at verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus would say that a couple of times. In fact, the parable itself, the parable of the sower, is a parable about listening. Some types of soil listen better and obey. Everything in this chapter that Jesus is teaching has to do with listening well. That's what he was concerned about. Listen. Be careful how you listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Down there in verse 23, he says it again. But now listen to verse 24. Verse 24, he says, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. Take care what you listen to. Be careful how you listen. Become good listeners. That's discipleship. A disciple is a student who listens, a student who learns, and a learner or a listener who does the things that he learns. Um, now, what does that have to do with this story? Skip down to verse 35 of chapter 4, and notice what happens at the end of that day 
where Jesus kept saying, listen, listen, listen. Here's what happens in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, He said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowds, they took Him along with them in the boat, just as He was, and the other boats were with Him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus Himself was... Uh, in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, this is an interesting story. Jesus, on that same day, says, let's go to the other side. Now, I have a question. Why? Why was Jesus going to get these guys on a boat and go to the other side of the lake, to the land of the Gerasenes, toward the Decapolis, the ten cities over there, and just come back? Like, it seems like maybe a day later, in no time at all. Why take this journey if he could foretell the future and know that he wasn't going to be accepted over there and they were just going to get back on the boat and come back, why would he go? Keep that in your mind. We're going to try to answer that question at the end of this lesson. What was the purpose of this trip? Now, <clears throat> maybe part of the purpose was to teach them what he did out there on the sea. He falls asleep. A storm starts brewing. Pretty soon the boat's filling up. Now, this is interesting because... If I was on a boat that I thought was going to sink and I was afraid, and Jesus is in my boat, I probably would wake him up and say, hey, help us out. You can help us, right? So it's interesting that what Jesus does is two things. Number one, he rebukes the storm. He says, hush, be still. Now pay attention. It listens. Did you know Whenever God speaks, whenever Jesus spoke, every part of creation would listen to him. Nature, storms, trees that would wither, demons were cast out, sickness would leave. Did you know the only part of God's creation that doesn't listen is us? We're the rebellious. Those that were made in his image, for whatever reason, don't have ears to hear. So, the second thing he does is he looks at his apostles and he says, why are you afraid? Now that's not a hard question to answer. Well, Jesus, there's a storm and there's, there's you know, water in the boat and I guess there's no storm anymore. The water is calm again. But what do you mean, why am I afraid? Now this next thing he says is interesting. He says, do you still have no faith? Now here's where I might argue with Jesus. What do you mean I have no faith? I woke you up. I knew you were the one that could help me. Why could Jesus say they had no faith? Why not even give them a little bit of credit for a little bit of faith? You know what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing. And that's what these guys didn't do that day. Do you remember what they heard? Go back to verse 35. Let us go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's go to the middle of the lake and drown. They weren't listening. 
Right after he'd taught them, listen, listen, listen. They didn't listen. He was fine. He was at peace. He knew the promise of getting to the other side. He could fall asleep in the boat. But they panicked because they didn't listen. And they got an F on the test, and it didn't stand for faith. Now, there's an application here. How many times do we in our lives panic and yell out for God when God's already spoken about the thing that we're panicked about? Do you think sometimes Jesus might say to us, why are you having no faith in me? I already told you the outcome of this. Let's go to the other side. Now, watch what happens when they get to the other side and keep that question in your mind. Why did they take this trip? What's the point of it? Let's start reading in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces... And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly to not send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he, but he did not let him, but said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, And how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is a great story. There's so many lessons to learn here. But let's look at it from the perspective I mentioned earlier. What do we learn about evangelism? About reaching others? About talking to people who need the Lord? Number one, number one. Jesus teaches us in this story that there is no place for fear in evangelism. How scary is this scenario? I mean, mean, if if I'd have been a part of this story, and it said that we got out of the boat there, and we see this man running at us naked, 
bleeding because he would cut himself with stones, shackles hanging around his wrists that he had broke, screaming your name, Jesus' name. I'll tell you how this would have read if I was part of it. It would say, Andy and his friends got back in the boat and paddled furiously to get away from this fellow. But Jesus was never afraid of anyone. He faces this man courageously. Now, I'm afraid of a lot lesser things. Uh, But I need to not be afraid. When God is my God, when he's told me to share things, even with people that sometimes make no sense to me, who I think are far past help, I'll say more about that in a moment, I need to learn to not be afraid. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 say something about fear. And I just want you to notice these verses briefly with me. Philippians chapter 1, um, verse 27. Paul wrote this, Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. By the way, if there's conduct that's worthy of the gospel, there's also conduct not worthy of the gospel. Paul uses three figures of speech here in this text. He says, So that whether I come or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that's one, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, that's two, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Three things that make us worthy of the gospel. Number one, we need to act like a soldier. That's a word they would use to stand firm, to draw a line in the sand as in battle, and there's no retreat. The second thing he says is, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That was a word that was used of an athlete who all of his muscles would strive together, would work together to accomplish the goal. And the third thing, in no way alarmed, not frightened. That was an equestrian word that would talk about a a horse that would get spooked and throw the rider. We're not to be alarmed. We live in this world victoriously, and we have news for others that can help them. So lesson number one, Jesus was not afraid of men. Lesson number two is related. Jesus didn't pre-qualify people. Jesus believed there was no case too hard in evangelism. I don't know about you, but this guy wouldn't have been at the top of my list. I don't usually look for the naked guy who cuts himself and with so many problems and think there's going to make a good Christian. I normally think of the people who are clean cut and got most of their life right, and all they are missing, all they're missing is that they're not followers of Jesus. You know, sometimes they're the hardest people to reach. They don't know they need God. What I've found is that people that are at the lowest place, the darkest place, sometimes they're the ones that will respond. I'll have more to say about that at the end of the lesson. Lesson number three. I learned in this story that Jesus had extraordinary compassion on people. How so? Did you see the compassion in this story? Uh, Down there in verse 15, when the people come out to observe the man, it says that he was clothed and in his right mind. Now, I don't picture the guy rolling around, you know, a rolling bag or carrying a duffel full of his clothes. 
Where did he get the clothes? He had to have been wearing Peter's tunic and Jesus' extra pair of sandals. Or, But just think about the fact that whatever was going on in this guy's life, the apostles and Jesus himself gave this guy what he needed in his life. Sometimes the way we show compassion to people is not just with our words of comfort, but with our activities and our deeds. But I don't think that's the greatest place you see the compassion of Jesus and why it's an important lesson. Go back up to verse 9. Look at chapter 5, verse 9, when Jesus said, it says that Jesus was asking him, what is your name? Now, I know that the demon answers, legion answers, but I want you to picture Jesus standing in front of this man. He says, what is your name? When was the last time you think that man heard that question? Sounds like to me, everywhere he went, the people in his own town, they were so afraid of him, they would, they would shackle him and bind him. When was the last time anybody treated this man as if he mattered? You know, some of the times in my life where evangelism has worked the best, it's that I thought to show a kindness or ask a question that nobody else was asking. You know that person at work? And everybody else can't stand them because of their behavior or their strangeness. Have you ever thought to just find out their story? Who are you? What's your name? Sometimes in churches, people come in and go out and come in and go out. But I've had people come back and, and the reason they came back is they said, this was the only place where somebody actually wanted to know about me. They asked me my name. I remember learning this lesson from a woman named Teresa Kircheville, preacher's wife. I lived with them for a little while. We were new to the neighborhood. We had just moved to Arkansas. But she wanted to be friendly with her neighbors, and she saw a moving truck down the, the street. And she said, hey, let's bake some, some brownies. And so we baked some things, and we went over there and knocked on the door. Um, and when the person answered the door, Teresa said, hey, I, I saw you're new to the neighborhood. We are new here, too. Um, but we just wanted to welcome you. My name's Teresa. What's your name? By the way, if you're looking for a good bank, we found this bank was pretty good, and there's a, a grocery store around the corner here. And if you ever want to find a good church, there's a good church right here if you'd like to come. I'll never forget the, the person said, you know, you're the first person that's welcomed us. Do you think those people came and visited? For sure they did. We need to learn to see people and ask things and say things that nobody else is thinking to ask or say. Lesson number four. Jesus cared more about people than he did pigs. And Maybe that seems like a strange lesson, but it's a really important one. Jesus cared more about souls than he did pigs. I know some people that are animal lovers. They'll pick up any animal on the side of the road, nurse it back to health. I don't understand it at all. I appreciate your compassion. But I know some of those people have never once thought about the value of somebody's eternal life. They won't reach out to them. You know, there's something interesting going on with this pig story. Uh, and I'll get back to the, the value here in just a minute. But do you notice how these... Gerasenes react. They're afraid of Jesus 
and send them out of the country. Every other place Jesus went, they said, hey, we've got a lot more crazy people in town. Come in here and heal them. But why were they so afraid? I think it might have something to do with the fact that there were herdsmen for these pigs. Now, I don't know if this was Jewish country or not, but if it was, they weren't supposed to be raising pigs. Why do they have pigs? Why are there herdsmen? There might be a double judgment going on here, not just with the demons, but maybe some of these Jews who were running a bootlegging operation. This is black market pork. Maybe some of them had tasted bacon, and here they are off kind of away from everything, and they can do some things against the law. And obviously this is a prophet. We don't want your kind around here. Get lost. And they've just blown their cover. This man perhaps kept everybody away. By the way, side note, sometimes when you're trying to teach people the gospel, they'll have their own bootlegging operation. They don't want Jesus to get too close because they're hiding some things. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus was willing to save this man at the cost of 2,000 pigs, ruin the livelihood of these herdsmen. Later, the apostles in the book of Acts would ruin the livelihood of idolaters and silversmiths by teaching the gospel. Have you ever thought about how much 2,000 pigs is worth? I'm kind of weird. I looked it up. Uh, right now, pork's like $3 and something a pound. Most pigs are about 150 pounds. You multiply the price per pound by 150 pounds times 2,000. Right now, 2,000 pigs is a million dollars and a couple hundred thousand on top of that. Is one soul really worth that? I'll never forget when I was a kid, we were having a business meeting in our church. We were talking about an ad that we were running in a paper. It, it ran in like a, a Navy paper down there in San Diego. And somebody suggested, this older gentleman in the front said, we're paying too much money for that ad. We need to not use the Lord's money like that. And one of the men raised his hand and said, uh, actually, I just want everybody to know I saw that ad and that's what brought me here. And the man actually said this. I don't care about that. It costs too much money. Really? If souls aren't the thing that we're about, if we're not willing as a church to put God's money toward the souls of men, not the physical needs of others, the spiritual needs, then what are we doing? I mean, is it worth an hour of your time every week to spend in Bible study with somebody? What are you willing to give for a soul. Jesus cared more about people than pigs. A couple of final lessons here. I learned in this story that Jesus cared about at-home evangelism. Verse 18 is one of the strangest verses to me. This man begs Jesus to go with him. That makes sense. Everybody standing behind him from garrison, these people hated him. These were people that had abused him. Here's somebody that finally cares, and he begs Jesus to go with him. And Jesus says, no, no, stay here, he says. Why? Because these people were the people who would see the biggest change. I've heard some people say, I can't go back and talk to my old friends. I can't go back to my family because I've changed so much they wouldn't recognize me. That's the point. Go, live in front of them, your old drink, drinking buddies. If you're done with drinking, 
If you're done with the life and, the, and you can't be tempted, walk back into their life. Be the light. And when they say, what's happened to you? You can say, the Lord has happened to me. They can't ignore an example like this. Jesus cared that this man would do his work right there among his fellows. I also learned the prerequisite to preaching the Gospel. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, Go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. What does this guy know about the kingdom? What does this guy know about the Messiah? Does this guy even know the Old Testament prophecies? None of that mattered. All Jesus said to do was talk about what God had done in his life. Could that change the world? Perhaps. An interesting thing in the book of Mark Jesus isn't allowed to go into Decapolis. These people don't want him there. Jesus leaves this one preacher, one preacher in the Decapolis. When you get over to chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus goes on a tour where he goes up north into Syrophoenicia and eventually comes back down into the Decapolis area. And when he gets to Decapolis in chapter 7, verse 31, he ends up feeding 4,000 people how did these people know about Jesus? There had been one preacher there. I asked you a question at the beginning of this lesson. Why did Jesus take these guys all the way across the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, just to return on the boat the next day? The most profound lesson of all is that we need to see that the Gospel can change anyone. These apostles needed to see a power conversion. I mean, when God changes somebody that's just unchangeable, somebody that you never thought would ever change, I remember that's what lit a fire in me as a teenager. My stepsister, my dad had just gotten married when we graduated high school. My stepsister, when they got married, she was having trouble with drugs. She'd been arrested. She was pregnant out of wedlock. I never thought that that girl would change. But God gave me the, the chance to sit down with her and study the Gospel. She became a Christian. If I thought she was past hope, her boyfriend, who eventually became her husband, he was even worse. Kenny? But before Kenny decided to join the army and ship off, he became a Christian. But I have to admit, I thought for sure that Kenny was going to get lost. I've seen seasoned Christians go into the military and lose their faith. He was brand new. I heard a story about Kenny when he was in boot camp. Uh, the sergeant lined all the privates up because somebody was using foul language in, in the barracks and, and that sergeant didn't allow it. And he was going down the line, did you curse in my barracks? And they were all saying, no, sir, no, sir. He got to Kenny and for whatever reason, he asked Kenny a second question. He said, was that you, Private Palumbo, cussing in my barracks? And he said, no. He said, how do I know it wasn't you? And he said, because I'm a Christian, sir, and Christians don't talk like that. Shame on me that I thought somebody like that would never change. They're both still faithful to God. Have you seen a power conversion? Maybe you were your own. You never thought that you'd change, but the Gospel got to you. We must believe that God can do this for anybody. Remember the garrison demoniac. Remember what Jesus taught the apostles on this occasion. And remember these important lessons that our Lord taught us. Thanks for your attention. I sure appreciate the time. Thank you.